CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you out there for being with us for the show today. I want to get right to the panel and start our conversation. It's Thursday, which means my partner is Kevin Riley, now editor-at-large of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Bill. It's good to be with you uh, yet again. And uh, got a great panel today, too. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Kevin Riley, of course, uh, as most of you who listen to the show know and read the AJC know, um, took his retirement from the AJC, handed off the reins to Leroy Chapman, now the editor-in-chief of the paper. Kevin, so far, see, things seem to be moving all right. Yeah? You're, the the, the oh. transition's been pretty pretty seamless. Well, as expected, um, Leroy's doing a great job. We've had plenty of news, and um, people have kept me out of the way. So I think everything's working as it should. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being with us. Um, Margaret Coker is back with us. She's the editor-in-chief of The Current, which is based out of Savannah, <clears throat> nonprofit online newspaper. Margaret, people can find you at thecurrentga.com. Org. And as always, we're very happy to have you with us, Margaret. Thank you. And I want to tell Kevin, if he feels like he's too bored sitting on his um, hands, we're hiring at The Current. So if you want to come back into the news world, let us know. I think people there, there work go. a little, little harder than I'm used to, Margaret. <laughs> Raul Bali is back with us. He's a politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta, um, Raul, we'll give you a little plug. You said right before the show went on the air that next week you're leading a panel at the Atlanta Press Club reviewing the uh, session, the 2023 session of the Georgia General Assembly. Is that open? You've got to be a member of the Press Club to go to that, don't you? No, it's open to everybody. You just have to, to go to Atlanta Press Club to register. It's a joint event we do with the Georgia First Amendment Foundation. Uh, so it's, right. it's open to anybody who wants to hear uh, some great reporters, along with our friends at the Georgia First Amendment Foundation, talk about what they saw from the last session. You can go to the Atlanta Press Club website, I'm sure, to learn more information about that session. So we've introduced the journalists on the panel. Now we turn to Karen Owen, longtime uh, panelist on our show. Uh, we're very happy to say Karen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia, but more importantly now, stepping into the role of d- dean of, she's dean of, how do you say it? dean of university studies? What is that first title, right? If I got that right? Yeah, d- dean of university college. And so that's our foundational kind of studies and programs for our students who come in in their first and second years. And as if that weren't enough, then they said to you, we all want you to be dean of the Honors College as well. So you are a very busy person, and we're always glad when you make time for uh, being with us. Thanks for being here, Karen. Glad to join you. 
Let me uh, start the show by um, giving you some updates on stories we've talked about throughout the week on Political Rewind. Most recently, yesterday, um, uh, Mike Thurman, uh, the CEO of DeKalb County, was on the show. And among the other things we talked about was the fact that uh, yesterday, the uh, DeKalb County Zoning Board of Appeals, which uh, Michael Thurman points out as a citizen review panel, uh, looked at uh, whether to affirm what they call a land disturbance permit for the construction of the Atlanta Public Training Center. Um, of course, that center is planned on DeKalb County property, which is why DeKalb County has a role in it. Uh, Thurman said he expected it to move forward. It did. They, uh, the Board of Appeals approved it. And and I think, Kevin, it's it's worth pointing out that Mayor Dickens had a comment about it. He said, community input has greatly shaped the plans for this project, and we are continuing to listen about what enhancements can be made as we move forward. Um, and he's referring, in this case, to that uh, appeals board, uh, uh, board uh, but, but in fact, talking about other community input. But we've talked on this show about the fact that city officials have been a little slow off the starting line to really do the kind of community input that clearly would have helped them with this project. They're really still catching up on uh, both the public messaging that they're trying to stick with, the community engagement that they inevitably have to do. But I will give um, Mayor Dickens credit. He has been talking about it. He has been persistent. And while there's still uh, resistance out there and uh, there are people who are uh, still against the plan, um, they can't, I think, now say that that no one's listening. I think he's trying to create at least the impression, but I actually think the reality of letting people, especially in around the surrounding neighborhoods, be heard about what their concerns are. Um, Raul, here's another little update. Uh, we don't have to get into it in detail, but yesterday, of course, we talked about the fact that Chicago, not Atlanta, won the Democratic National Convention. And we speculated uh, as to whether or not um, the protests around that police training center, which the protesters call Cop City, may have deterred uh, Democrats who worry that if the protests are still going on next summer, which is who knows, um, that it would not be a good look for Democrats. But there was a, 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 an item uh, in the news this morning pointing out that Chicago went through the exact same issue when they planned a police training center. I think the difference is their center has already now been built after all the protests, Raul. Uh, look, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask Mayor Dickens. Um, you know, we, we uh, he had a an event that happened in the hours after the DNC announcement. Just not a question I, I had time to ask him because we only had a handful of questions. But look, there I think there were other factors. You know, I, I think you can't dismiss the fact that the Illinois governor is a personal billionaire and was going to, you know, basically make sure the Democrats did not lose money if they went to Chicago. And yeah, you're also there's the politics balancing Georgia being a battleground slash swing state versus the the wall that it what was in the press release called the blue wall of of Michigan, Wisconsin, you know those states that not necessarily neighboring states but nearby states to Illinois. So 
I think those 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 were as much of a factor. Would it have been a good look to have you know these kind of protests at the same time as the DNC convention? Probably not. But um, you know, I, I think in the end there were there were a number of other factors that played into why the DNC is going to Chicago and not Atlanta. Okay, I don't want to get into much more about this because we spent, I think, too much time talking about the fact the convention went to Chicago yesterday. But just for another minute or so, Margaret and Karen, you're welcome to weigh in. It it strikes me that, you know, as a guy who has been scorned uh, in a relationship in the past, the lesson I learned was just don't talk about it very much. Don't make a big deal about it. That just makes it worse. Um that might be a lesson that maybe some of the people in Atlanta might want to learn about all of this. Well, I, I, um, I, one thing that I haven't heard brought up in all of the discussions so far is the fact that the undisputed leader of the Democratic Party in Georgia until last year was Stacey Abrams, and she lost her race. And without mm. her as the, um, the flag holder of this bid, I, I can imagine that a, a billionaire governor who is the cheerleader for the bid in Chicago, um, that's that matters, right? You, you need both a, an all-star coach or an all-star quarterback in order to get your team um, to, to the big W. So I think that we might have had a different situation if Stacey Abrams was our governor right now instead of Brian Kemp. I think that um, for all of the star power that Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff have, they just don't have um, the same the same national appeal that that Stacey Abrams did. So I'd throw that into the mix. All right, Karen. Uh, Atlanta, you got jilt. You you got jilted. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and go find another boyfriend or girlfriend. For goodness sake. I was going to say, start planning for the next big event where you want to host, right? And and let this one go. I will say that going back to the comment about the protest part, though. Political party conventions, there's always going to be room for protest. That's what's going to be there. And so for a city not to be selected because of a threat of a protest is not probably at the makings of all that. But for the city of Atlanta, think how successful we worked hard to get the 1996 Olympics here. There are other things when you get your city leaders behind and really make an effort to move forward and and they'll get the next big event. All right. um, Thank you for that. Let's update another story that we've been paying close attention to um, ever since since, uh, federal judge Matthew Kaczmarek down in Amarillo uh, issued a ruling that essentially banned the use of mifepristone, the first in the uh, uh, two uh, regimen drugs that uh, two drug regimen for uh, abortions um, said that it was no longer uh, uh, a an effect. He, the FDA decision to allow it was wrong. The drug should not be used. Margaret, yesterday, an appeals court said no. Uh, mifepristone can still be used, but they did until this thing is litigated further. Um, say that the measures that FDA put in place, which would include sending it through the mail. Uh, and a couple of other measures during the pandemic could not be reinstated. And not sending it through the mail is a big deal to a lot of women. Yeah, it's a 
big deal for a lot of Georgia women to be much more specific. Right now, um, Georgia's own um, abortion ruling stands in place that limits the the rights of women to get an abortion, uh, and and. We also here in Georgia require women to see a doctor in person in order to have a, an abortion prescribed to her without being able to get a, an abortion pill, the, the medication abortion, through the mail. Um, this, this is effectively going to limit this type of abortion for our women. But as well, this also brings into, again, really stark relief, the medical inequalities that we have in the state. There are or over half of our counties, I think the number is 82 counties that do not have an OBGYN in them. And so for women who are facing both their own medical difficulties, whether or not due to an abortion that have anything to do with being pregnant, um, this is a reality. And now having to go in person um, is, is a problem. I think Meg makes a really uh, good point, and, and, and which is, look, uh, pregnancy in Georgia is arguably a very dangerous condition and fraught with risk, and this is a drug that can really come to uh, the aid of women in difficult circumstances, right? We, we can agree on that. The other thing that's odd to me about these court decisions, and I'm not a lawyer, but boy, I have a lot of friends and siblings who are. I keep being fascinated with how these courts are finding uh, the people who, the plaintiffs who bring these cases, how they find that they have standing. To me, that's just an odd thing. A group of doctors from somewhere, I guess, in Texas cherry picks a judge on an issue. And, and what it's revealing is that the concern is not, um, you know, safety, the unborn. It is a political agenda where you can get something done. And, and Bill, and I think as you guys talked about yesterday on the show, is Supreme Court has now, you know, after Dobbs thinking that the states would handle this, now is going to be faced with just, a, it seems like a case they've got to get involved in with abortion with regularity. It's becoming monthly almost. Yeah, uh, Raul, uh, you know, with the Supreme Court, you think, uh, you would think, after Dobbs uh, felt, thank goodness we can wash our hands of this now. We throw this back to the states. Let them decide what to do about abortion. But these federal judges, one, uh, Kaczmarek in Texas, and then the federal judge in Washington state, who uh, who said that 17 states that came before him saying they wanted to allow their states to continue getting mifepristone, he said that was fine. It, it looks like these federal judges are going to end up throwing it right back to the justices who would just as soon have it out of their hands, uh, Raul. And I think I think the bigger thing for 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 folks to understand is is it's not that abortion would be going back to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's the idea of whose responsibility is it to approve these kind of drugs? Is it the federal is it the FDA under the president of the United States of America, or is there a role for the judiciary? Is there a role for the legislative branch? Is there a role for attorney generals like Chris Carr, who's talked about, you know, he feels like that the FDA shouldn't have done this? Who's in the end? That's going to end up being what's in front of the justices is that specific issue of the FDA approval of this drug, which which we should remind the audience happened 20 years ago. And that may also end up being I've heard legal experts talk about that may also end up being an issue here with standing of 
Well, y'all took 20 years to bring this up. All right. Um, this is a, a story that we will be following in uh, the weeks ahead. So I'd like to move on now. Um, thank you all for helping me with, with the update on where the case now stands after, the, I think it's the fifth uh, District Court, Court of Appeals that uh, issued the ruling saying, yes, you can use Mifepristone, you just can't send it through the mails for the time being. So um, let's move on to another update, if we can. Um, we've been watching closely, as most of the country has, what happened in the Tennessee legislature late last week when the supermajority in the Tennessee House voted to expel two members, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, because two young black Democrats, because they had participated in a uh, gun safety rally that uh, brought young people, many of them, into the legislative body, into the gallery, And uh, the two legislators uh, encouraged their chance. We need better gun laws and the like. And, of course, all this after the awful shooting at the Nashville Christian School, which killed um, three children and uh, three others. Uh, But, Karen, uh, the outrage was great, mostly among Democrats. But yesterday, Justin Pearson was reinstated to his job, appointed uh, back to his seat in the legislature. He does have to run for re-election. Justin Jones had been reinstated by the Nashville Metro Council a few days earlier, so they're both back in their seats until special elections can be called. And Karen, I want you to weigh in on this, but before we do, let's listen to what Justin Pearson had to say last night when uh, the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted that he could go back to the legislature. There was a jubilant crowd, and this is what uh, Justin Pearson said to all of them. You can't expel hope. Karen Owen, uh, the Republican supermajority created two martyrs and uh, sparked what will be a national uh, movement uh, around them. So I think the interesting thing here is we have two young legislators who have a different approach to lawmaking, and we're seeing that as a generational change, right? Social activism is coming back into our institutions, and they're the prime example of how you do that. You bring constituents with you, you make your case on the floor, but in doing so, you're violating what some legislatures have as their norms and their precedents and rules. And I think that's where we see lawmakers in this generational divide are having to accommodate and try to adjust to what that means. The supermajority in Tennessee thought they could handle this through an, you know, you know, we're going to kick you out because you broke our norms, but then it's just reverberated into, again, this activism and no, democracy and this Republican form of government we have means that more individuals are going to participate. We can go back to local counties. They'll put you back in. But I will say for these young lawmakers, it will be advantageous for them now. One, use your passion to to be active, 
but use the process to get what you want done. So if you want to see changes in gun control, learn to work with the legislature and those members in the process at place, because that's how you'll actually get it done um, to where you want to make the change. It does take time. The lawmaking process is hard, but I think they have to recall that as well. And I do think Tennessee now is at a national point where they're in the national spotlight. They're not at a point. They're at the national spotlight. And we're going to learn now how critically important our state legislatures are. Raul? You know, and the, the interesting thing is it's also going to be a lesson for state level leaders on how to handle these things. Because the interesting thing, bringing it back to Georgia, is we've had these flashpoints at the state capitol. The abortion debate a few years ago, even the school voucher debate this year, you know, you had such a big reaction and, and you had John Burns kind of take a step back and say, hey, y'all, let's please follow our decorum. You had the same thing with, with you know, David Ralston, both by dealing with both Republicans and Democrats when he was the speaker, too. You know, taking lessons from how you handle what, you know, are folks on both sides who are taking, you know, more public and louder approaches to making points, political points. I think this is a good time to make a, a plug for um, one of the, the great institutions that we have here in Georgia, which is the Carl Vinson Institute of Gov Government at the University of Georgia. Uh, oh. This is a, an institute that is dedicated to public service and training our public servants, including our legislators, um, to know what the rules are, to know what uh, what it means and in order to, um, to move through the hallways of power at the Capitol, and hopefully um, the, the mores in order to get, um, get your work done. I have no idea if Tennessee has a similar institution, but one of the um, one of the, the, the criticisms of the, the two young legislators there was that they didn't know the rules, they had to be taught a lesson, and for all of the paternalistic and slightly coded racial language and in that sort of thinking, um, I think that, um, as, as um, Dr. Karen was saying, if you really want to be effective instead of performative, you do need to figure out how to use the rules to your benefit. And so time will tell now whether, um, whether these two young representatives are, are going to make a change or just perform a change. I also think it was a fascinating observation and uh, sort of uh, just case study in leadership because, um, of, of course, the, the leaders of the um, Tennessee legislature, they, they want the rules to be followed. They want process to be honored. That is necessary. And in fact, I mean, as both uh, Karen and Margaret point out, I mean, you, you, you can't get bills passed with filling, by filling a gallery with protesters. I mean, that will not pass a bill. It, it may make for some good television and speeches, but it won't get a bill passed. But on the other hand, um, I think in Georgia, we've seen more measured historically, at least in my time here, more measured reactions to, uh, you know, really stark political differences. And uh, what the Tennessee leadership did was basically give these legislators a tremendous power by attempting to throw them out of the legislature. They're the best known state legislators in the country right now. I mean, wow. Uh, is that what you wanted to do when they, you thought they were not following your decorum? It seems like a big leadership mistake to me on the part uh, of people. 
Yeah, in fact, we, we're hearing that at least one of them may decide to challenge Marsha Blackburn, the conservative Republican uh, member of the U.S. Senate in Tennessee. We'll see how far that might get in a state that is, after all, a red state. But Karen, so as I hear this conversation, a couple points. Number one, I don't think anyone has argued that um, when one of them, I think it was J- Justin Jones, but I'm not certain of that, had a bullhorn on the floor and used it to encourage the protesters in the gallery, obviously a breach of decorum. I think the greater issue was a complete expulsion rather than some sort of reprimand. It was clear that legislators just wanted to get rid of these two. And and I think that's an important point to make. But here's the other one, Karen, because you began this part of the conversation. When you talk about being active in actually trying to pass legislation rather than be performative, which is a lesson you think they need to learn, we might also want to make the point that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and other Republican extremists in the House certainly haven't learned that lesson either. Oh, no. And I was going to say that um, to your first point, the expulsion was a very reaction to what happened quickly. And there was not the tempered leadership style to actually then just reprimand them behind the scenes, really. Right. To make sure that they understand the process rules decorum of the legislature. To your point on our current members of Congress and the state legislatures, and probably even at the local levels, are much more of what we refer to many times in political science as the show horses, not the workhorses anymore. And so it is all about getting attention. And that attention gets you fundraising dollars and it gets you to your next level. So wherever you may want to go, if you're at the state and you want to run for the Senate, like these two may consider doing against one of them against Marsha Blackburn, you get your kind of face on the stage and everyone knows who you are. I will go back. So Margaret mentioned Carl Vincent. And if we look historically, members like Carl Vincent, who chaired major committees, there was the norm in the House that you got one question as a freshman congressman to ask in a committee for the year because you were to sit and learn. And that question you asked one time should be your very best question and it should help your constituency to get reelected, right? But you had to build a knowledge base and the apprenticeship. That has all been thrown out the window. And I say that in the process of Carl Vincent because LBJ was on the committee with him and had one question one time. But think about the massive lawmaker he became in the Senate because he did take on the norms and learn the process to get legislation passed and transferred that over into the executive branch. Our lawmakers probably right now don't want to take that time. They want to act now and get passing of their bills through quickly so that they have something to speak on. And that's probably not how our institutions intended it to be. Kevin, you want to make a quick comment before we got to get to a break? I know you have to get to a break, Bill, but I hope you don't implement such a policy on this show when we have new panelists. They only get to talk one time because you kind of run a tight ship as well. <laughs> well, I, I think that's uh, I I do. But I also like to give a lot of time to all of you who are so smart on this show. Um, I make another quick point and then we'll take our break. Um, Margaret, I'm so glad you mentioned the Carl Vincent Institute. It's important for, I think, uh, people to understand what you were talking about. At the beginning of every biennial, freshman members of the legislature go to Athens 
where they go through, I think it's about a three-day training program in which they do learn a great deal about um, the rules of the legislature, decorum, all of the things that are important. And, of course, uh, the leadership is out there as well, and it's an opportunity for people to get to know each other a little better. And I think, Karen, jump in. I just want to plug one thing. At the University of West Georgia, we also have the Thomas, the Speaker Thomas Murphy Center for Public Service, uh, where we're really trying to help our students learn leadership and public service. So not those who are just elected, but getting our college students prepared for when they want to run for office. All right. Um, thank you uh, all for um, uh, that conversation as we update important news that's been playing out in Georgia and across the country this past week. By the way, one other thing, our Sarah Callis, GPB reporter Sarah Callis, uh, investigated whether the Georgia legislature could expel a member with the same ease that Tennessee did. And what she learned is it's unlikely because in Georgia, the rules require a super majority to expel a legislator. That's something that's very hard to achieve. So it is unlikely that it could happen here. And we thank Sarah Callis for researching that for us. All right, we're late for our first break. Let's get to it and we'll be back with more. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Karen Owen, Margaret Coker, uh, Raul Bali, and Kevin Riley join me for today's edition of Political uh, Rewind. Raul, let me uh, start with you on this next subject. Um, we know we saw two horrific mass shootings uh, over the, the past weeks, the National Christian School, which we talked about briefly, and then much more recently, the uh, shootings at uh, uh, the um, historic Louisville National uh, Bank. Um, it, it was interesting in the aftermath of the shooting in Louisville that um, Governor Bashir, um, the Republican governor of Kentucky, made a very emotional statement because he he came on camera and said that he had lost two two good friends uh, in the shootings. Turned out one of them had survived. Nevertheless, he was quite emotional. Talked about how yes, now is definitely the time that we have to pray for uh, the families of these victims, pray for a better future, whatever. And yet, in that emotional statement, not a word about whether it was time to do something about guns. And in fact, Kentucky had just passed uh, had passed legislation that further loosened gun regulations in the state. Raul. I think that's just the reality of, of where we're at in terms of what you know, what legislation is and is not passed. Really depends on on what state you're in and and who controls those states. That's just kind of where we're at. And and to bring this whole conversation back to to Georgia, um, the the sole finalist uh, to be the next superintendent over in DeKalb County Schools 
uh, Dr. Devin Horton. He's doing some town halls. Uh, and his first town hall was at Shambly High School. And one of the first questions, one, not one of the first, actually one of the last questions I think C was asked was about how are you going to keep kids safe? And, and one of the possibilities he mentioned was, was metal detectors. Uh, in schools. Also, you've got the governor today uh, signing um, um, a school safety bill. But what that does is 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 put together a school safety drill uh, for students to be done in the first couple of weeks of school uh, when kids come back to school. That's just kind of where we're at um, when it comes to these is is what legislation is is not passed is just going to be based on where you're at. So, Kevin, I mentioned those two recent mass shootings uh, to introduce the study that the Kaiser Family Foundation, Kaiser News, just released um, that speaks to how Americans uh, deal with gun violence, how, how exposed they are to gun violence. And, I, and Kevin, I'm going to read just a few of the uh, data points, and then we can all talk about them. Uh, Kaiser says that their survey shows experiences with gun-related incidents are common among U.S. adults. One in five, 21%, say they've been personally threatened with a gun. A similar share, 19%, say a family member was killed by a gun, which includes suicide. And nearly as many, 17%, say they've personally witnessed someone being shot. Um, It's not a surprise, probably, uh, that... Three in 10 black adults say they've personally witnessed someone being shot and that a fifth of Hispanic adults say the same thing. A third of black adults, 34%, say they have a family member who was killed by a gun. And overriding all of this is a majority, Kaiser found out, said that they believe that guns are a threat or a major concern in their daily lives. I'm a little startled by those figures, and I'd love to see more about the methodology because it's if that if those figures are accurate and we don't really have any reason to doubt it, they're staggering. They are staggering, and uh, when you read them, you, you just can't believe it. Um, and, and it also points out, that as I think has become more, we've become more aware of is guns have become the leading cause of death among children's and ad- children and adolescents as well. So, um, I mean, we are a country that has become wilder than the Wild West when it comes to guns. I mean, even the mythology of our past, which glorifies guns to a certain point, uh, was not as dangerous and perilous to everyday American citizens as we appear to be now. And, and we also have both sides talking past each other. These statistics, I think, ultimately will be seen as accurate or very close to accurate, and then it turns into, well, is it the guns or is it something else? And that's what we can't seem to to get past. Margaret? There's been an incredibly effective and influential um, political campaign by the NRA and other pro-gun groups saying that it's not guns that are dangerous, it's not guns that kill people, it's people who kill people. And so when you are um, confronted with these sorts of statistics, that uh, that one in five Americans have um, 
have been in danger or shot by a gun. Um, I can't believe that one in five Americans are actually dangerous. I really think it's time to take a hard look at the hardware and the tools that that um, are used when people do get shot and suffer terrible consequences. I think that when it, gun gun violence and, and gunshots are the leading cause of death for our children, it's time to rethink what that slogan and what that political campaign message actually does mean. Here in the state of Georgia, I know that police um, uh, here in coastal Georgia, but across the state, I know they, they are frustrated by the fact that they cannot destroy the guns that they confiscate um, when they are detaining people or um, guns that are used in the commission of a crime. They can't, they have to put them back into the market. And in that resale, um, you aren't destroying the tools of violence. You are perpetrating the violence in some ways. I know that when there are voluntary gun buybacks that police um, departments offer, like the one last year in Atlanta, you know, people come in in droves. There are thousands of guns taken off the streets when when um, some way that, uh, you know, that police are trying to keep themselves safe and keep us all safe by taking those guns off the street. Karen, I want to bring you in, but I just got a note from a listener who's right. I said Bashir in Kentucky is a Republican. He's not. Of course, I should have re- uh, said he is a Democratic uh, governor of the state. So which may mean he's more likely to try to do something uh, in the aftermath of the horrific shooting up there, Karen. Correct. He he may try to move something, um, but the Kentucky legislature is Republican, so it's still going to be difficult for him to act alone. Um, to Margaret's point about the interest group, so the NRA has a powerful uh, membership and a powerful message that they use to continue this narrative about the guns and people. It does remind me, though, that if we continue to see this and the numbers are, as you reported, and more people are affected, we may need to see something like the Mothers Against Drunk Driving organization emerge up on the mothers or in fathers or friends of people who are opposed to this gun violence and really take an act against the NRA. These lobbyists and these lobbying groups, you know, you need to kind of join together, but it is difficult because of the Second Amendment right. So, you know, thinking about taking on alcohol is one thing. It's a freedom and a personal, but it's not written directly into our Constitution, as some people might say. Um, we, we got rid of prohibition, but it's not like Second Amendment. But I do wonder if that's where we're going to have to move, knowing that the children are the ones most affected. And how do we organize to just hear from the common sense approach of how we handle guns? Um, Not outline everything, but just restrictions that most, if not all Americans, really could come together and agree on. Uh, Kevin? You know, well, Karen's right. I mean, more than half of Americans, you know, kind of rule of thumb favor. Uh, more uh, restrictive gun laws or background checks. You know, there are different policies that people favor, but no one, as a group, Americans and Georgians don't necessarily favor the wide open gun laws we now experience. Now, in terms of things happening, you know, Tennessee has a Republican governor, Bill Lee, and the in the aftermath of all of this stuff, he's saying he'd sign an executive order tightening background checks and then speeding up the review of, 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 you know, criminal histories and stuff. And he's pushing the legislature to pass what he's calling an order of protection law. And he's been staying away from a term that usually takes over, which is a red flag law. So you even see a Republican governor in a red state who's starting to see we can't 
we can't stay where we are. This is not working. And eventually, as Karen points out, I do believe the politics will force a change. Margaret? Well, the politics have been on a slow crawl, and hopefully they're moving in the direction of more gun control, it just, in, just so we can um, safeguard our children. But, you know, dialing back 10 years ago, the Sandy Hook school shooting, where you had all of the elements of, of what um, I think to a political consultant who wanted to um, be on the side of gun control, all the, all the right elements were there. You had a um, a majority white school, a affluent um, upper middle class community, you had dead children and you had um, grieving parents who went across the nation trying to build a consensus for um, common sense gun control. And they have been fighting a fight over a decade. They, they, you know, they're, they're, um, their tragedy was weaponized by far-right um, influencers and far-right politicians um, to say that it was all a bunch of hooey. It was complete disinformation. Their children weren't actually dead. This was just a, um, a Trojan horse battle to take away our guns in America. And so here we are 10 years later with more children dying um, on a monthly basis. And one would hope, finally, that more than one uh, Republican governor, that more governors and more police chiefs would all band together to um, to help us all save our next generation. All right. Um, thank you for that discussion. Uh, I got to get to our final break of the show, but we'll have a lot more when we return on Political Rewind. Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, on our show yesterday, we spent a little time uh, talking with the panel about an article that you had published um, in which you had asked your readers what were the issues that mattered to them going into the legislative session, and then how did they feel about what emerged afterward? And I thought it was a fascinating uh, piece, and um, I pointed out yesterday, and you can expand on this and other aspects of what they said that environmental concerns seem to be very high on their list of priorities. And uh, one of those issues being um, an, uh, a belief that it was time to pass a law to stop further mining. We know there's going to be one mining project uh, at, uh, at or near the Okefenokee uh, Swamp. But uh, talk a little bit about what uh, readers were telling you about that and other issues. Yeah, well, um, I give um, full credit to our um, political reporter, Craig Nelson, for doing the deep dive into the um, the data of all of the legislative bills and how that paired up with, with what our readers and, and Coastal Georgia constituents um, wanted to see our legislature do um, during this, this uh, spring term. And uh, to be fair, it was, it, you know, I, I think that some of our some of our more engaged readers um, are people who who definitely live um, live in coastal uh, facing properties. They are very much aware of of the, um, the risks of climate change and sea level rise. They are people who care about conservation. Of course, um, um, here in coastal Georgia, we have all of the magnificent barrier islands that are home to some of the most amazing um, ecosystems and um, bio biology, um, um, as well as seafood and, and um, sea life. So this is something that is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. 
um, the Okefenokee is just one of these um, one of these treasures that I think across America people recognize as as an amazing place that um, allows you to understand both uh, the prehistoric history of America and the um, beauty of nature today. The fact that we had almost unanimously um, our state representatives and senators who are um, backing a, a bill uh, to protect the Okefenokee from any man-made intrusions, including the potential um, <clears throat> mining um, that that um, an Alabama company wants to do on the outskirts of the swamp. You know, there, there was there was absolutely no one who stood against that bill um, in our region of Georgia. The problem was in this top-down way that laws get made in our in our state house, when a committee chairwoman, in this case, um, did not want to further the bill, all she has to do is uh, not schedule a vote. And so a very prominent legislation can get stuck, not for... Um, you know, there there wasn't anyone from coastal Georgia with a bullhorn on on the House or Senate floor trying to demand uh, that this bill goes through. Of course, but but yeah, it was a very it was a big disappointment, and um, there is a lot of consensus both among red and blue um, residents and legislators to try and protect this this state treasure. Raul, and then Kevin. You know, um, on our wrap up show um, on, on our station. When we were looking back at the legislative session, um, I looked back at some of my notes from early in the session and realized how many of the big things we talked about at the beginning of the session didn't happen. There was no legislation that passed on housing. You don't have to, Kevin doesn't, Kevin can tell us about how much housing legisl, uh, reporting they did and how much conversation there was around some of the housing reporting that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did. Nothing got passed on housing, uh, even a, a very basic bill, much less some of the, the more in-depth bills. Remember the conversations we had about getting rid of runoffs? That went nowhere. Uh, it's it, it just, it's it, it, you know, we talked about housing, runoffs, um, you know, uh, making changes to Georgia's medical cannabis program. Um, that didn't end up, nothing happened there. I think one of the big takeaways that, that I and my fellow um, uh, uh, State House reporters have talked about, and we'll probably talk about at the Atlanta Press Club next week, is how many things did not move forward this session um, uh, on some of the big issues we've been talking about. Well, Raul makes a great Raul makes a great point, and and I I really want to congratulate uh, Margaret and her her team at the current because. To me, this is the biggest challenge that Georgia has. The stark difference between what citizens expect and want and really need from their representatives under the Gold Dome and what actually goes on. If you had been following the Georgia legislature just from a distance, you would have assumed that there were millions of children attempting to change their gender. And that is why we spent so much time on that and, and that played out the way it did. Meanwhile, the thousands of tenants across the state who are helpless and living in deplorable conditions, well, tough luck. And even if you're like, hey, I just like to do a little sports betting online, um, uh, tough luck. And, and to me, that is like, if our state, which is in a tremendous era of prosperity 
and budget surpluses. Now is the time to improve it, make big advances, be, continue to build a great place to live and work. And instead, as I think the current points out in stark reality and rule points out and we pointed out, instead we get preoccupied with red meat issues that do not move the state forward. Karen, though, it is a paradox. Um, we know that there are a lot of issues that uh, residents of the state would like to address, as the current uh, points out, that don't get addressed. And, and perhaps voters are frustrated by that. But the reason it's a paradox is that it is those red meat issues that mobilize the base that also seem uh, to matter uh, to especially primary voters. So it's paradoxical. Yes, it's the political will, right, of a leader to take on leadership and handle what the state needs or the entire constituency needs and not just what a base needs so that you can get reelected. It's definitely the um, decision of a leader to if I'm going to play to my reelection or if I'm going to play for the public good and pass legislation we know that is actually beneficial to more people and what the people want. I will say this session, we should not forget that we had new leadership, a brand new speaker, a new lieutenant governor. And so the legislature had to adapt to new leaders and new priorities of how the session was going to run. You had new chairmen and chairwomen who were learning their own you know, game of what to play and negotiate and what bills. So that was part of this session. And note that in Georgia law, right, Constitution, all the legislature has to do is pass the budget. And that's where it plays out when you have new leadership is just getting a budget passed. We should hope that for the next year, we'll see a lot more maybe of issues come forward that we can actually address, not the cultural issues. Well, I, Kevin, I, agree with, I agree with what Karen's saying, and the, and the new speaker supported the housing bill in particular. But, you know, Margaret and Karen have both mentioned the Murphy Center, the Vincent Center. Those two guys are not walking through the door. The moment is now. I mean, I get new leaders. I get all these things that are happening. But what are we waiting for? Do we really think that Georgia's state of mental health for its citizens should wait? I mean, I don't understand that thinking at all. All right. Um, Kevin Riley uh, gets the last word on today's edition of Political Rewind. Raul, I did want to talk about how Twitter has decided uh, to label your organization and mine as NPR stations state-sponsored media, which caused NPR yesterday to say they were getting off Twitter. PBS did the same thing. BBC is being called state-sponsored media. Um, it is a really frightening situation. So you got 20 seconds to make. By the way, at our place, we're deciding how we're going to respond to that. I'll bet you are too, Raul. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. So now we're being now NPR is being called government funded media. Um, so, so you know, I, I don't know where Twitter's going with this. And yeah, I think the interesting thing is to see what organizations like yours and mine decide to do about Twitter, because in the end, how much traffic are we really getting from it? Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right, we are really out of time now. Hey, tomorrow we're going to be talking with reporters from Florida who are going to talk to us about seeing Ron DeSantis up close and uh, what they think about his plans to run for president, how he's done running the state. It's really going to be an interesting show, I think. 
So I look forward to talking to uh, them tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody. <laughs>